This is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee and this is The Full Story. This week, Australia will reach a new milestone in the pandemic. 10,000 lives lost to COVID. Four times as many people have died this year than the last two years combined. And as Australia's COVID death toll continues to grow, we're still learning lessons in this pandemic. How do we make sense of this loss today? And how can we best remember those who've died? Today, medical editor Melissa Davey looks beyond the numbers of the pandemic and a conversation with one woman who lost both her parents. Our lives have changed. There is no going back. Even if the pandemic ends tomorrow, you know, you have to acknowledge that. And even though it sounds like a terrible thing, (laughs) it is what it is. It's Tuesday, the 5th of July. So Mel, Australia's reached another COVID milestone. This week, the country's going to go past 10,000 COVID deaths. How do we even begin to reckon with that kind of number? Yeah, it's hard to fathom, isn't it? Melissa Davey is the medical editor of Guardian Australia. And numbers became such a huge part of our everyday lives throughout the pandemic, didn't it? I mean, we were Mm. inundated with these daily case numbers and hospital numbers, ICU admissions, then vaccination rates and deaths and vaccine doses secured. And I guess we were for quite a while fixated to these numbers because they dictated whether we would go into lockdown or how soon we could see our loved ones again, whether we'd be able to visit people we cared about, um, whether we'd have to wear masks in certain settings. So now we're at this point where we don't have those restrictions in place or numbers determining how we live our lives quite so much. So I guess the number 10,000 deaths, it, it reflects this terrible toll of the virus It reflects the fact that many people would be feeling such trauma and grief at losing loved ones still. But I also think it does risk just becoming this statistic that feels just another number or or too overwhelming because there's a sense at the same time at the moment that people are, that they're sick of the numbers. They're sick of the pandemic. We recognise it's not over, but we're also not getting these daily updates that we used to get. The way we are living our lives at the moment isn't as tied to the numbers. It's tougher as well to account for every single death and to know more clearly where those deaths occurred and who those people are. Mm. So I think as we take stock of this number, it, it does also depend on who you are and where you sit. Did you lose someone in the pandemic? Were you a health worker? There are people who will think this number is far too high. There are people who will say that this number shows how well Australia did in comparison to other countries. And I think no matter where you sit or how you feel, as we surge past this number, which might have seemed really shocking to many of us at the start of the pandemic and and might have even seemed shocking even just a few months ago that we would reach this number, we really now need to at least take that opportunity to drill down into the statistic, right, and learn something from it. We need to put it into context and and examine what does this 10,000 number say about where we've come from, where we're at today and where we're going. Well, let's first take stock of where we've come from. 
It's hard to imagine it's only been two and a half years, but how did we get to these 10,000 deaths? He's the first person to die in Australia from coronavirus, but James Kwan will be remembered for much more by the medical team who tried to save his life. Tragic, and uh, James was a lovely, funny guy, and uh, we're lucky enough to get to know him a little. Our very first known victim of the pandemic was a man named James Kwan. Uh, he lived in WA, but he was on the Diamond Princess cruise ship in Japan with his family when he contracted COVID and he died on the 1st of March in 2020. That's right. WA's chief health officer claims that it's only a matter of time before community spread happens here in Australia and that now is the time to prepare. The These earlier deaths in lower numbers were in some ways more shocking, weren't they? Because we didn't know anything about COVID at the time. It was so new and scary. We knew more about people as individuals because there were so few deaths. And remember at this early stage, there was this huge spread on cruise ships and among people returning from overseas. So we closed our borders quite rapidly on um, the 19th of March, 2020. It began as an idyllic cruise of the South Pacific. Tonight, it's the source of a criminal investigation. We then reached death number 100 in May 2020, and that was driven a lot by the, the Ruby Princess deaths. The outbreak among passengers is growing by the day, with another 126 new cases in New South Wales alone. Um, we saw hundreds of infections among passengers on that ship and the deaths of 28 Australians. The ship that continues to haunt the Emerald City, the Ruby Princess, that lost its luster weeks ago. It's we saw another spike in August that year year, which was then driven by that spread in hotel quarantine. OK, so what we've got here is got transmission happening within the hotel. It's probably airborne transmission through aerosols, the stuff that just hangs around and wafts down the corridors. So we had those outbreaks among travellers and staff working in hotels when infection control procedures broke down. Of course, that then got out into the community. And then... In Victoria, there are new fears for the elderly, with up to 80 cases now linked to nurse of course, it got into aged care, especially in Victoria. We are of the on the cusp of a major health emergency. As such, a special ward has been established at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. We had no vaccinations. We were still learning about the virus. And suddenly staff were trying to turn these facilities into these makeshift hospitals almost and infection control areas. And at the same time, hospital workers were getting sick, aged care staff were getting sick. There were no staff to look after people getting sick. It was just a nightmare. And, and we had 655 COVID-related deaths in aged care in Victoria alone in 2020. So that spiked another wave of deaths. It's a huge milestone tonight in our fight against COVID-19, with the first doses of the Pfizer vaccine arriving on Australian soil. By this time next week, vaccinations... By February 2021, we had the first COVID vaccines, which provided some hope. But as we all know, we need two, preferably three doses to really be protected. The rollout was slow. It didn't immediately offer protection. And, and by August that year, we passed 1,000 deaths. We reached 5,000 deaths by February this year. So that's quite a large jump. Um, not necessarily unsurprising because our restrictions had largely eased, but we were now grappling with Omicron, right? So it's this new variant that's come along. It's highly infectious. Yes, we're becoming highly vaccinated, but that's not much relief to people who are immunocompromised, for who vaccines just don't work very well, for the elderly. And now, just a few months later, so we're in July now, we've reached 10,000 deaths, doubling 
in just a few months. So our daily death toll is now averaging about 50 deaths. It's crazy to think that while life seems to be proceeding as normal for many of us who are free to move around in the community and isolate at home when we get sick, those deaths seem to have really climbed over the last year, as you say. Yes, this number of deaths is not unexpected by epidemiologists. They've been warning of this and um, saying that this is what happens when restrictions ease. And look, there is a debate about some of that. So although to expect no deaths and no spread would just be unrealistic, we obviously can't live in lockdown forever. There are definitely some epidemiologists and health workers calling for mandatory masks to be reintroduced in some settings like supermarkets. It's not a uniform view at all. Um, There are other experts who say that there would be limited benefit to that at this point, that it wouldn't have the public support. And, you know, in the meantime, while state governments are still publishing case numbers and the federal government's still releasing data, like we talked about before, they just don't mean the same thing to the way we live our lives now. There are people who say that it should mean more, that um, we should be just by choice wearing masks in certain settings. But it's just not dictating whether or not we have to go back into lockdowns. So, Mel, does this number, 10,000 deaths, help us to determine how effective our response is or has been over the past two and a half years? It's obviously very sad. It's very tragic. And I I spoke to the Director of Epidemiology at the Doherty Institute about this, Professor Jodie McVernon, and she said that the deaths and case data is now more complex to interrogate. So even though we have more data and more data is usually a good thing, it is harder to kind of then pick apart that data and and examine what it really means. So very early in the pandemic, before vaccination and treatments, it was quite straightforward to identify um, people with COVID. There were small case numbers and then look at what that was doing to their body. They hadn't been vaccinated. You could determine more easily whether someone died from COVID or whether they had a comorbidity and nearly all infections were being captured and interrogated. But now as numbers become more overwhelming and you have vaccination added in, it's kind of harder to know exactly what has caused what, what is linked to what, what protects against what. And so we're seeing this now even with death numbers. It's hard to even record those. You know, some of the deaths have been reported months after they occurred and been linked as as a COVID death weeks later. So we need to know more about these people who died. We also know that many of these deaths may have been preventable if early antiviral treatments that prevent COVID from becoming worse were more accessible, or if more investment had been put into the health system, which was struggling long before COVID. So we also know that these deaths would have been prevented if our vaccine rollout had have happened more rapidly, right? We know that we need to do more as well to increase booster uptake. Um, Our booster uptake is nowhere near our double dose uptake. So we certainly need to not think that these 10,000 deaths were inevitable. Hmm. So even though there are things we did well in Australia, there are definitely failures that we, we know have happened along the way and we can learn from those and, and make sure that we don't have unnecessary deaths going forward or at least that we, we limit them further. Hmm. I mean, it's a good point that Australia has is, is considered to have done much better than many countries at fighting the virus. How does Australia's approach compare with other countries around the world? So Professor Jodie McFernan, who is head of epidemiology at the Doherty Institute, said that the fact we're only reaching 10,000 deaths at this point 
more than two years into the pandemic, actually highlights that Australia's strategy of keeping public health restrictions in place until high vaccination rates were reached was a really successful strategy. And and she absolutely acknowledges that these deaths were tragic and we have to learn from them. Mm. So if you compare Australia to other countries that reopened their borders before vaccines were widely distributed, their number of deaths is not only higher and continuing to rise, but they're also in different demographics. So in the US, where COVID deaths have exceeded 1 million, the rates of both vaccinations and booster shots remain low and young and previously healthy people died at much more alarming rates. So we are one of the most highly vaccinated populations in the world in Australia. The scale of death is much smaller. I mean, the statistics show that. And the deaths in Australia are in different demographics. So they're disproportionately affecting vulnerable and disadvantaged people. And within those groups, it's people who are unvaccinated and who have not had their booster or who have significant comorbidities, things like diabetes or advanced cancer, who are most likely to die. But at least because we have those high vaccination rates, we can then start targeting and focusing on those more vulnerable people and and trying to reach them. And that's what we should be doing. But it sounds like Australia's pandemic response did overall save lives in the end. There's no doubt. I think that you, you have to acknowledge the success of Australia, even while acknowledging we stuffed up a lot of things. We had some really tragic scenes here, but we didn't have dead bodies piling up in hospital hallways, for example. And we also didn't see um, the the high rates of deaths among health workers exacerbating the problem. So yes, our health workers were affected. They got very sick. They were absolutely burnt out and still are. But I was speaking to the head of Royal Melbourne Hospital's Department of Respiratory and Sleep Medicine, Dr. Megan Reese, and she's currently working on the long COVID response. And she told me that she recalls just watching with absolute horror the number of deaths among her health worker colleagues overseas. And yet her hospital, um, the Royal Melbourne, hasn't had any staff members die from COVID. Mm. By comparison, when the US Thoracic Society had their international meeting last year, they actually opened it with a list of all the respiratory physicians who died from COVID. And that's just the respiratory specialists. It's not to mention all of the other health staff that that died. So yeah. COVID has caused this unprecedented stress on our hospital systems in Australia, but they are systems that were also under a lot of stress long before COVID. And it can be hard to put all of this into context without seeming insensitive or without seeming like you're overplaying the statistics. It's a tough thing to do and to talk about. Mm. I think that's the difficulty when it comes to talking about milestones like, like this. There are a variety of different opinions and feelings and emotions about it. What does Australia have to do to prevent the next 10,000 deaths? So the first thing is we have very clever people like Professor McVernon at the Doherty Institute asking important questions about um, what does um, population immunity mean in Australia? It's a mix of vaccination and it's a mix of infection. So how might new variants respond to that? Um, What will our vaccine rollout look like going forward? Do we need new types of vaccines? That kind of forward thinking is is going on and that includes looking at how we can better protect other countries as well because we're not protected unless um, there's global protection. And then we have the issue of how do we protect ourselves in Australia right now? So we do have treatments available now to prevent people from getting very unwell. We have these antivirals, um, Paxlovid and Legevrio. So um, we need to make sure people know that these treatments are available and that they need to access them early. Um, And these treatments are for the most vulnerable at risk of dying. Um, So we need to make sure they're getting where they need to go. 
We need to improve our booster uptake. I mean, 70.4% of people nationwide who are eligible have had three or more doses. So that's quite a lot lower than the 95% who have had two doses. Mm. So we really need to do more work to make sure that we are boosted and protected. And then we need to finally just, (laughs) we keep coming back to it, but we need to improve the state of our health system overall. I mean, it's struggling. It's always been struggling. And just because we fared better than other countries, it doesn't mean that it doesn't need a, a significant improvement. We're hearing all the time now about delays in getting paramedic care and um, ambulances, ramping at hospitals, health worker burnout. Mm. So we just need to reform the the health system from top to bottom. Yeah, at this point in the pandemic and for future um, challenges and emerging challenges and big public health problems, everything from obesity to an ageing population that we're facing right now. I think that this is going to be the, the big health story going forward for Australia. What do we do about the strain on every aspect of our health system from allied health to GP care to hospitals to aged care. And we are so far from even beginning to resolve that. Mm. Mel, you mentioned before that your your reflections on 10,000 deaths will differ depending on who you speak with. How are the families who've lost loved ones in this pandemic responding to and feeling about this milestone, do you think? When I asked some of the family members about what this milestone means to them, 10,000 deaths. You know, it's just so clear. It was so clear that for them, life has just not at all returned to any sense of normal. You know, the grief hasn't stopped. When you think about it, some of these people lost loved ones very recently. It's not that long ago that we were grappling with this spread through aged care. And then there's that added grief of knowing that vaccines came along just a few months later and treatments came along just a few months later and that their loved ones didn't have access to any of that. So some people feel as if the memories of their lost loved ones have been buried in the numbers. And so as Australia's death toll has slowly risen at this time when people are just so overhearing about the pandemic, that's really hard for them to feel like their loved ones have been forgotten. Next, a conversation on grief and going forward. So let's get going. Um, So Liz, tell me a little bit about your parents. (sighs) So... John and Sybil Bearden. Um, oh, this is hard. <laughs> okay. It's hard to summarise in just a short thing, isn't it? It's, their lives were full and rich. Liz Bearden's parents were two of the 655 people in aged care who suffered COVID-related deaths during Victoria's second wave of the virus. My father was born in March of 1934. My mother was born in February of 1933. Mm -hmm. They were married in 1960. They had difficult childhoods. They lived through the Depression and World War II, but nonetheless found happiness within what family 
they had. They both worked hard and tried to give my brother and I better lives, which they did. Um, my father had a lifelong passion for jazz. He was uh, a lifelong member of the ALP mm-hmm. and believed in trying to make a difference in people's lives, particularly people who needed help. Um, My mother, she was kind and caring and accepting and had a wonderful sense of humour and was a great deal of fun. Her mother was Scottish and my mother loved all things Scottish, so she was very involved with Highland dancing and the Highland pipe bands and Scottish country dancing and would organise debutante balls. She was very gregarious. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's something of their life. In early August 2020, John and Sybil were living together in an aged care facility in Melbourne. That time was so chaotic. Back then, there were no vaccines available yet for the virus, and the state was isolated during its second lockdown. So on the 1st of August, I noted on the Vic Health media release on the website that my parents' aged care facility had recorded one positive case I called the facility as soon as I learnt this and they confirmed this. Liz says her parents' nursing home never contacted her to let her know there was an outbreak there. Her mum was the first of her parents to test positive. Days later, both her parents were sent to hospital. My father was transferred on the night of the 3rd of August. My mother was not transferred until the 5th. All too late... Uh, because eventually, of course, my father tested positive as well. And there ensured over the next couple of weeks <sighs> such confusion, such chaos. Liz says she found it hard to get clear information from healthcare providers during this time as outbreaks swept through aged care homes in Victoria. So it wasn't just that my parents were ill and were probably going to die. It was also the chaos surrounding that, not being able to see them, not being able to really have comprehensive, clear, concise conversations with the healthcare workers. They were doing their best, but they were overwhelmed. One small mercy we were allowed to to visit my parents to say goodbye. And that was so helpful. Up until that point, we hadn't been able to visit my parents at all. Uh, My father died on the 17th of August and my mother died on the 18th of August. Being able to see them was the most difficult thing that I have ever done. But it helped. It was good to be able to say goodbye. Like many others who've lost loved ones during this pandemic, 
She also had the added strain of dealing with strict public health restrictions when she lost her parents. That was difficult. Not being able to mourn properly. We could only have 10 people at the funeral. Uh, We had their funerals together. We couldn't get a venue, so it had to be a graveside funeral. Of course, it rained. There was some comfort in that they died together. And I think the grieving process continues because what killed my parents, we are still living through. (laughs) You won't be able to uh, broadcast this, I think, but, you know, it was fucked. It was so totally and utterly fucked and there's no other way of describing it. Ah, yeah. Liz's grief has profoundly changed the way she views the world today. The loss of them, it influences how I go forward. I think particularly, you know, there is an attitude out there of, well, your parents died of COVID. They were old, you know, their lives were over. People don't understand what an awful thing that is to say, to not value life, to not value our elders' lives. Every loss is a loss. As we continue through the pandemic, losing so many people to COVID, the majority of whom are our elders. These people are not disposable. They need to be acknowledged. They need to be grieved for. They have value. Thinking back to 2020, Liz feels that people like her parents were reduced to numbers. I think everybody was following the daily press releases, the conferences, you know, the media calls. I think the focus was was to somehow gain control and by not naming the people who died, by just referring them to them as numbers, I think it was a way of controlling, you know, it was a way of dampening the horror of what was happening. Uh, it enabled us to understand what was happening without really feeling it. Whether that was deliberate or subconscious, I don't know, but I think that it certainly helped to get us here. Um, This living with COVID, this collateral damage that people seem quite comfortable accepting. I mean, can you name one person who died in the last day or week or month and their loved ones, where are they? How are they coping? Does anybody care? Liz is now calling for better staffing and funding for aged care to help improve living conditions for elderly Australians. 
and she hopes the community can find a way to honour those we've lost in the pandemic together. Uh, Perhaps in the future, uh, a day of mourning or a memorial service or something for all of us who have lost loved ones. I don't know when is a good time, though. What do we do? Do we wait five years, ten years? We're going into our third year now. Perhaps it's time that we did something. I think it would be helpful, not only for those of us who have lost loved ones, but also for the people who will lose loved ones in the future, to remind people to be careful, to wear a mask, you know, get vaccinated, at least try to mitigate all of these deaths, all of this sickness and suffering. Can we not do something? I really appreciate you taking the time on your day off to share it with us because I didn't know them, but it sounds like they were good people and it sounds like they were very loved. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to talk with you about my parents. Thanks again to Liz Bearden for her time. Thanks also to Melissa Davey, medical editor for Guardian Australia. You can read Melissa's ongoing coverage of the pandemic, including her recent article, Reflecting on Families Who've Lost Loved Ones to COVID, Australia's 10,000 Deaths and the Paradox of COVID Normal. We'll post a link to that on the Full Story website. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert, Karishma Luthria and Joe Koning, who also did the sound design and mixing. The executive producers of Full Story are Miles Martignoni, Gabrielle Jackson and Laura Murphy-Oates. I'm Jane Lee. See you next time.